1: This is a clip from Richard III, the final episode of The Hollow Crown. This 2012-2016 BBC2 adaptation of Shakespeare's two cycles of history plays featured cinematic battle scenes, graphic violence, and an epic historical scale. In this series, wrote theater critic Michael Billington, Shakespeare outdoes Game of Thrones. The groundbreaking HBO television series Game of Thrones is similarly known for its gorgeous production, unflinching depictions of violence, and sense of historical realism. George R. R. Martin, the author behind the series, has even released a book called Fire and Blood, devoted entirely to the history behind his fictional world of Westeros. Game of Thrones is based on Martin's epic fantasy series, A Song of Ice and Fire. In a 2014 interview with Rolling Stone, Martin said this about his writing process. You look at Shakespeare, who borrowed all of his plots. In A Song of Ice and Fire, I take stuff from The Wars of the Roses and other fantasy things, and all these things work around in my head, and somehow they gel into what I hope is uniquely my own. As Martin suggests, and The Hollow Crown demonstrates, there are all kinds of powerful inspirations, parallels, and resonances at work between Shakespeare's plays and Game of Thrones. That's what we explore in this special bonus course of Shakespeare for All, entitled The Wooden O and the Iron Throne Game of Thrones and Shakespeare. In this first episode, The Way They Were in the Songs, we're talking about how Martin and Shakespeare use history. We'll dive into the real-life history of the Wars of the Roses, an inspiration for A Song of Ice and Fire, and for Shakespeare's history plays. We'll discuss the different ways that Shakespeare and Martin transform history into art, and ask why history is so powerful as a source of stories. Warrior queens,
0: child kings, royal bastards, scheming uncles, feuding families, shifting allegiances, usurpation, decapitation, incest, toxic masculinity, toxic monarchy, a sprawling cast of characters, genealogical charts, ardent fans, a global literary event. So you take Shakespeare, you add dragons, zombies, naked people, and corporate interests, you take away the verse, and you get Game of Thrones." So it's widely acknowledged that the hit franchise Game of Thrones is based on the Wars of the Roses, a bloody 15th century battle between feuding English families. But I'm interested in how that connection is mediated by Shakespeare and how knowledge of the Shakespearean context enriches our understanding of the literary elements of Game of Thrones. My name is Jeff Wilson. I'm a preceptor in expository writing at Harvard University and the author of the forthcoming book from Rutledge, Shakespeare and Game of Thrones.
1: In his book, Shakespeare and Game of Thrones, Jeff Wilson analyzes the different ways that Martin was influenced by Shakespeare and by writers influenced by Shakespeare.
0: Shakespeare has this weird influence on Game of Thrones that is both really prominent and really indirect because Martin at times is engaged directly with Shakespeare's works, but even more so, Martin is, is basing his historical uh, knowledge on 18th, 19th, 20th century popular histories that aren't Shakespeare, but are themselves deeply influenced by the way Shakespeare chose to tell the story of the Wars of the Roses. And so Martin wasn't directly engaging with Shakespeare, but he was directly engaging with the materials that were directly engaging with Shakespeare.
2: What I find fascinating is the way we kind of inherit interpretations of history. And we get a bit like when you draw an angle that's very tiny at the beginning. If you if you extend it, by the time you go not very far, the distance between the two lines gets bigger and bigger and bigger. My name's Anton Lesser, uh, and I played Kyburn in Game of Thrones. Shakespeare was drawing on sources that were compiled from material in the context of a dynasty, the Tudor dynasty. So they were probably quite biased and so um, that material that Shakespeare then drew on for his uh, for his resource to write the Wars of the Roses was already slightly down that that angle was getting slightly wider and what was already maybe slightly inaccurate chronologically started to become material for him to distort even further in in the cause of making great stories. So then we have George R. R. Martin, who takes what we've now got two or three levels removed from, from the origin and just takes that as a sort of nucleus for his own dramatic license. We'll start
1: with that historical nucleus that inspired Martin and Shakespeare. Reed Edwards is a fan of Game of Thrones and a history buff who loves reading about Westeros and medieval Europe we asked Reed to tell us the story of the Wars of the Roses and to describe some of the parallels between this history and thrones.
3: The War of the Roses was a period of you know, civil war in England uh, between you know, 1450 and 1480s, uh, in which two kind of warring cadet branches of the House of Plantagenet, which is the ruling house of England at the time, um, essentially went to, went to battle over their right for the throne. And these two houses were one, uh, the House of Lancaster, which was represented by its sigil, the Red Rose, um, and their rival, the House of York, represented by the White Rose, thus the uh, ever-creative name, the War of the Roses. The story really begins in kind of the 1450s um, in England, which was a period of, of particular unrest. You had a particularly weak king uh, by the name of, of Henry Sixth. He learns of kind of the last outpost in France that his father, Henry V of of Shakespearean fame, um, Bordeaux, has finally fallen to the French, and he loses his mind. I mean, literally loses his mind. He actually goes into a period of, of insanity.
1: Fans might see a parallel between this mad king and Ares Targaryen II, the mad king overthrown in Robert Baratheon's rebellion not long before Game of Thrones begins. Henry VI's madness sets off a chain of events that also disturbs the line of succession for the English crown.
3: And the the nobles of the realm look around for an alternative to this, this, um, I would say, beyond mad, but just kind of degenerate king that they can't rule. And conveniently for them, there's a rival claimant to the throne um, who hasn't asserted his right, but his name is Richard. He's the Duke of York. He has many nobles behind him. And they determine that it's in the best interest of England to name him as a regent um, with the title of protector of the realm. And he serves in this role for a period of time until Henry's senses come back to him. uh, And Henry decides that he wants to retake personal rule of the realm, which doesn't sit particularly well with Richard. It very much pleases Henry's wife, Margaret of Anjou, who doesn't like Richard very much. And... He decides that, Richard, this is, decides that he's going to go to war to assert his claim to the throne and take over as king himself. Uh, So he raises his banner, so to speak. He brings in all the nobles that are loyal to him. um, And he goes to war.
1: Richard is so successful that Henry agrees to name him heir to the throne. But in an ironic twist of fate, Richard dies in battle soon after. And Henry VI feels safe on the throne. But of course,
3: you know, as with all these twists of fate, uh, it doesn't last long, this period of stability. And, and Richard's son, Edward IV, decides to rise up and avenge the death of his father in this noble plea and bring all of his, his bannermen along and take the throne along the side. And he does so and is finally victorious. This young, he's 19 years old. He's supposed to be dashingly good looking. Uh, he takes the throne at the battle of Talton, one of the bloodiest battles in medieval period where 50,000 knights, you know, were clashing and 10,000 of them died on the field of battle um, and he becomes Edward IV the the next king of England
1: here too we start to see some parallels with events in game of thrones
3: many people equate you know Ned Stark and the, the Ned Stark character to that of Richard of York the father um whose noble and ultimately dies for a cause he believes in. And then his son, the, you know, Rob Stark character, much like Edward IV, rises up, calls in the banners, and, and marches off to war to uh, to defeat his father's enemies in, in the name of justice and his own father.
1: Rob Stark calls in his banners and goes to fight the Lannisters, just as Edward of York fights the Lancaster family. And as Edward became King of England, Rob is hailed by his bannermen. My sword is yours in victory and defeat
3: from this day until my last day
2: the king of the north the king the north
0: so the the way that the text is initially set up by martin is that you have the starks as the yorks you have the lannisters at the, as the lancasters and you have the uh, Targaryens as the Tudors.
1: Of course, Rob Stark never ends up on the Iron Throne. But Edward IV ruled England with relative stability until his brother George and the Earl of Warwick rose against him. Shakespeare dramatizes this uprising in Henry VI, Part III. Shakespeare wrote two cycles of history plays called tetralogies because they each contained four plays. In the first tetralogy, written in the early 1590s, he told the story of the Wars of Roses in Henry VI, Part I, Part II, Part Three, and Richard III. In Shakespeare's play, what prompts Warwick's rebellion is the fact that Edward commissions him to negotiate Edward's marriage with the French princess. Edward then becomes captivated by a woman named Lady Grey and marries her, leading Warwick humiliated and angry. Rob Stark also loses an important ally when he promises to marry Walder Frey's daughter and marries another woman instead.
2: Walter Frey is a dangerous man to cross. I know that. And you mean to do it anyway? I love her.
1: In the Wars of the Roses, however, Edward IV does go on to defeat Warwick and secure his throne again. He lives out his life as king and his 11-year-old son, Edward V, succeeds him. The transition of power looks peaceful, but there's another twist of fate ahead.
3: For any Shakespeare fans out there, um, the most, you know, one of the most infamous characters in all of history, Richard III, enters the scene. This is the uncle of the poor boy king, and he imprisons his his nephew, Edward, along with his younger brother, Richard, in the Tower of London. They die, you know, some some months later in mysterious circumstances, but, you know, everyone points the finger at Richard and Richard assumes the, the throne as Richard III.
1: Richard III, depicted in the play as a strangely beguiling hunchback villain, is one of Shakespeare's most memorable creations and one of George R. R. Martin's favorite characters. In episode three, we'll discuss how Martin recreates Shakespeare's Richard. For the historical Richard, gaining the throne was the prologue to the last great struggle in the Wars of the Roses. Many nobles opposed his rule, and they turned their support to the last Lancastrian heir.
3: One a young boy again, by the the name of Henry Tudor, who's this 18-year-old boy um, who's been away in France, you know, hiding away with his uncle, trying to amass forces uh, to return, who has this distant link through his mother and uncle and some second cousin, basically, to the throne, crosses the Channel, invades England, and finally defeats Richard III at, at the Battle of Bosworth Field, and establishes the Tudor dynasty on the throne, which finally you know, puts an end to the War of the Roses. And he even goes so far as to marry uh, the eldest daughter of Edward IV, Elizabeth of York, to kind of unite the two houses.
1: In Game of Thrones, there's also a hope that a long lost heir to the throne will cross the sea, take the throne, and reunify the kingdom, maybe by marrying someone from another great house. This victorious storyline is what many characters and fans expected from Daenerys Targaryen.
0: This long lost uh, child from the, the Targaryen family, who's the analogy to the Tudors, is gonna come along and reunify this uh, nation after a period of civil war. And you get shades of that, but it gets mixed up and jumbled up and turned around and upside down, and then sometimes rewritten at the very end. Um, so that, that you, can, you can see, you can track how Martin used the Wars of the Roses and Shakespeare's first tetralogy as source material, but also was uh, perfectly happy to walk away from that and uh, s- explore different uh, storylines.
1: For any fans who knew English history, Game of Thrones set up expectations about how Daenerys' story would go. But the episode The Bells radically upended those expectations. George R.R. R. Martin and Shakespeare use historical sources, but they aren't bound to them. They always transform history for their own artistic purposes, and each does so in a different way. For Shakespeare, his key strategy
0: for creating compelling art was to leave information out. His sources always give us so much more information about the story than what he gives us in his plays, so there's all these gaps in, in Shakespeare's stories, but... In contrast, Martin's strategy is to put everything in, to give us all the information, more information than anyone could ever want. And so when we're reading the fiction, it feels like reading history with all the details of of historical scholarship. And so both are transforming their sources, but in really, really different literary ways.
1: Martin and Shakespeare also transform history by shaping it into a particular kind of story. Shakespeare looked at the Wars of the Roses, with its series of many political rulers falling from power, and saw one literary genre repeating itself over and over.
0: He structures his first tetralogy as a series of tragedies. So you get first the tragedy of Joan of Arc then the tragedy of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, then the tragedy of Richard, Duke of York, and then the tragedy of Richard III, just one after another. And every end is the beginning of another tragedy. So you have this sense of kind of recurrence and cyclical narrative. Um, But then about three quarters of the way through Richard III, things change from this cycle of tragedies to uh, what feels more like an epic heroic romance and you start to get richard the as evil battling the earl of richmond as good
1: the hollow crown draws out this moral contrast between richard III and henry tudor earl of richmond by intersplicing their speeches to their troops before their final battle
2: loving countrymen remember this if you do swear to put a tyrant down you sleep in peace the tyrant being slain. And whom doth lead them but a paltry fellow, long kept in Britain at our brother's cost, a milksop. Sound drums and trumpets, boldly and cheerfully. God and St. George, Richmond and victory!
1: Shakespeare's depiction of a heroic Henry Tudor overcoming a demonic Richard III reflects a view of history called the Tudor myth. The Tudor monarch Elizabeth I ruled England when Shakespeare wrote his history plays. And this was how the Tudors would have wanted to see their role in history, as the providentially destined victors in a cosmic battle of good against evil.
0: So in the course of telling
1: these historical,
0: societal tragedies, Shakespeare starts to identify generic form, and then he changes the generic form. And as soon as he's telling a historical romance, you start to get elements of fantasy in it. With the conquest of of good versus evil, then Martin sees that the Tudor myth has elements of fantasy in it, and so it would be well suited to the genre conventions of fantasy literature. So it makes sense to bring in dragons and and zombies and long-lost princes and princesses.
1: Martin saw how Shakespeare started to move medieval history towards literary fantasy by casting political struggle in this mythic spiritual mold. Then Martin took that same historical material and asked just how far he could push the fantasy elements.
3: If you look at a map, a medieval map of the world, uh, at the edges of the map, there's areas that are either unexplored thus far um, or haven't really been traveled to. And oftentimes you'll see this Latin phrase, hixunt draconis, uh, which means here be dragons. And it essentially entails that we don't know what's out here. There could be anything. It's dangerous. It's scary. But there's mythological cute creatures. There could be. And at the end of the day, he, he brought that to life. He said, well, what if at those edges of the map there actually were dragons?
1: Thinking about all the different literary genres that Shakespeare and Martin use, mythology, tragedy, romance, fantasy we might start to wonder why they started with history in the first place. If you're going to fictionalize the story so much, why bother using historical sources?
3: I think that what Martin felt that the history brought to to his stories and his plots and his world were the kind of more gritty side of history. I think I remember um, an interview seeing an interview with Martin where he described his fear with a lot of the post Tolkien high fantasy writers and that they were kind of moving towards this um, I forget the exact phrase, but he describes it as kind of a Disney World type medieval world. And he felt that a lot of the kind of grittiness that came into you know high fantasy and things that he loved, Um, In high fantasy could really be brought out by the history itself.
1: One of the grittiest and most celebrated episodes of Game of Thrones was actually based on a historical medieval event.
3: Take, for instance, the Red Wedding. Uh, He's specifically come out and say that his his inspiration came from from two separate events in Scottish history, but but one notably known as the Black Dinner. And it was uh, essentially this dinner hosted between these two warring clans of Scotland.
1: At a talk in 2018 martin described this historical event of the black dinner between the warring scottish clans
2: so they they came to the royal castle and they had a nice dinner with the king and then at the end the band
3: began to play this very ominous dirge-like song and the servants came in with a big covered platter And under that was a black boar's head, which was a symbol of death. And when they saw that, the two Douglases knew that they were going to be killed, and they were taken out, and their heads were immediately chopped off. And it's a great story, and of course, um, a lot of modern historians say it didn't happen that way. Yes, they were executed, but there was no dirge-like song, and there was no fancy dinner, and there was no black boar's head on a covered plate. Some storyteller added all that later. But you know, the storyteller was right. It's a better story with all yeah. that stuff in it.
1: And famously, in its adaptation of the Black Dinner story, Game of Thrones brings back that ominous dirge in the song the musicians play at the wedding. A song that reveals they are actually enemy Lannister soldiers.
2: <laughs>
3: And a Red Wedding, which is something that I think captured the imagination of people throughout the world when it came to Game of Thrones, was an instance that, you know, had its roots in history. I mean, these, these events happened, these fascinating stories took place. And I think that, you know, Martin's view is th- those are out there, so why not use them?
1: One reason to use these sources might be to shed more light on people and groups whose stories are misunderstood. George R.R. R. Martin is especially drawn to the stories of powerful women in medieval history as was Shakespeare. With Shakespeare's first tetralogy, that's where you get a lot of the best female characters
0: in Shakespeare's entire works. You get Joan of Arc, you get Margaret, who who are just fearless. You get Eleanor, and and you get uh, Marjorie Jordan, and and you have these these witches and Machiavellian women and and, uh, military leaders who are out on the battlefield who are breaking some of the stereotypes of uh, female characters at the time.
2: Madam... The king is old enough himself to give his censure. These are no women's matters. If he be old enough, what needs your grace to be protector of his excellence?
3: I think one of the things that Martin found so fascinating was some of the female characters at this time, because... There's, there's a common misconception in history in this period that the women characters were these subservient, sat by the sides of their husbands, and they listened to them and obeyed and did what they wanted. Uh, and that's just, far, it couldn't be farther from the truth. And, and characters like Margaret of Anjou, uh, you mentioned Anne Neville, I would also add in uh, Elizabeth Woodville, the uh, the wife of Edward IV, were uh, fascinating individuals in this time, uh, intelligent and also very strong in their beliefs and their backing of their children's claim and ultimately wanted more than anything to see their sons sit on the throne of England as much as people want to hate Cersei Lannister. Um, there's mothers who can who can appreciate her love for her children and the desire that she has to see you know what she believes is best for them Um, and so i find those parallels to be you know kind of even more interesting than some of the more i think obvious you know mad king instance characters
1: one of the interesting aspects of martin's writing is the way he can keep you from hating people like cersei lannister characters who could easily be seen simply as villains mythological battles between good and evil like the one Shakespeare depicted between Henry Tudor and Richard III, are a staple of fantasy literature, especially J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Martin was strongly inspired by Tolkien's epic, but he brought a more realistic and historically rooted quality to the morality of this world.
3: In Tolkien's work, there's definitely a good and an evil, Um, and there's, there's entire species that are good versus evil. And I think what Martin found uh, and and that's you know that that's the same in the folklore that Tolkien was borrowing from well in history there is, there is no good and evil. I mean, there's, there's bad characters, there's bad people, and there's good people, undoubtedly. But at the end of the day, uh, no one can look at the House of Lancaster or the House of York and say one of them was good and the other was bad. It, it's just not the case. And I think that allowed him to create these characters and build out these nuanced characters. Take a Jamie Lannister, for instance, who, you know, at the beginning of the story couldn't be, you know, more evil in, in the minds of most fans.
1: The very first episode of Game of Thrones ends with Jaime Lannister attempting to kill the child Bran Stark because Bran discovered Jaime's sexual relationship with his sister Cersei Lannister. By season 8, Jaime is risking his life to fight alongside the Starks. But even so, his character arc is not a simple transition from bad to good. He leaves the Stark army because he is still drawn by a powerful love for Cersei. For most of Martin's characters, there's no easy or simple way to judge them. And that's another feature that history helped provide.
3: I think that he found that that character arcs in history were just so much more prevalent than taking from your typical, you know, fairy tale uh, story, so to speak, uh, that it's it's good versus evil and, and good triumphs in the end.
1: This kind of moral complexity in Game of Thrones and in Shakespeare's plays is one reason why these works are so compelling to so many people, including the actors who play in them. This is Anton Lesser's reaction to Kyburn, the character he played in Game of Thrones.
2: I love him because he's not an evil character. Neither is he a good character. He's just very complicated and I love that. And I think most actors if you ask them what's the most satisfying sort of role to play, they say roles where you actually don't know what you don't know what's going on.
1: Lesser is also a veteran actor of Shakespeare. And he finds the same attractive, complicated quality in Shakespeare's plays, especially tragedies like Julius Caesar.
2: But tis a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the climber upward turns his face. But when he once attains the utmost round, he then unto the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. So Caesar may then, lest he may, prevent, and therefore think him as a serpent's egg, which hatched, would, as his kind, grow mischievous and kill him in the shell. I think it's brilliant because it challenges you. A, it makes you sort of admit that you don't know what this life is about. You don't know how you would behave if you were given power. You don't know how you would concl- make a conclusion that Brutus has to make to kill Caesar or, or be true to his friend. None of us know.
1: In our next episode, we'll investigate the complex morality of Shakespeare's and Martin's worlds. We'll look again at history and how it shapes characters' moral choices, and at how those choices become even more difficult once you acquire power. We hope you'll join us for Episode 2 of The Wooden O and the Iron Throne, Uneasy Lies the Head that Wears the Crown.